Chapter Twenty Three of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Twenty Three. This scene lasted I know not how long. Insensibly, the passions and reasonings of Welbeck assumed a new form. A grief mingled with perplexity overspread his countenance. He ceased to contend or to speak. His regards were withdrawn from me, on whom they had hitherto been fixed, and, wandering or vacant, testified a conflict of mind terrible beyond any that my young imagination had ever conceived. For a time he appeared to be unconscious of my presence. He moved to and fro with unequal steps and with gesticulations that possessed a horrible but indistinct significance. Occasionally he struggled for breath, and his efforts were directed to remove some choking impediment. No test of my fortitude had hitherto occurred equal to that which it was now subjected. The suspicion which this deportment suggested was vague and formless. The tempest which I witnessed was the prelude of horror. These were throes which would terminate in the birth of some gigantic and sanguinary purpose. Did he meditate to offer a bloody sacrifice? Was his own death or was mine to attest the magnitude of his despair or the impetuosity of his vengeance? Suicide was familiar to his thoughts. He had consented to live but on one condition, that of regaining possession of this money. Should I be justified in driving him by my obstinate refusal to this fatal consummation of his crimes? Yet my fear of this catastrophe was groundless. Hitherto he had argued and persuaded, but this method was pursued because it was more eligible than the employment of force or than procrastination. No, these were tokens that pointed to me. Some unknown instigation was at work within him to tear away his remnant of humanity and fit him for the office of my murderer. I knew not how the accumulation of guilt could contribute to his gratification or security. His actions had been partially exhibited and vaguely seen. What extenuations or omissions had vitiated his former or recent narrative, how far his actual performances were congenial with the deed which was now to be perpetrated, I knew not. These thoughts lent new rapidity to my blood. I raised my head from the pillow and watched the deportment of this man with deeper attention. The paroxysm which controlled him at length in some degree subsided. He muttered, Yes, it must come. My last humiliation must cover me. My last confession must be made. To die and leave behind me this train of enormous perils must not be. O oh, Clemenza! O oh, Mervyn, ye have not merited that I should leave you a legacy of persecution and death. Your safety must be purchased at what price my malignant destiny will set upon it. The cord of the executioner, the note of everlasting infamy, is better than to leave you beset by the consequences of my guilt. It must not be. Saying this, Welbeck cast fearful glances at the windows and door. He examined every avenue and listened. Thrice he repeated this scrutiny. Having, as it seemed, ascertained that no one lurked within audience, he approached the bed. He put his mouth close to my face. He attempted to speak, 
but once more examined the apartment with suspicious glances. He drew closer, and at length, in a tone scarcely articulate, and suffocated with emotion, he spoke, "'Excellent but fatally obstinate youth! Know at least the cause of my importunity. Know at least the depth of my infatuation and the enormity of my guilt. The bills, surrender them to me, and save yourself from persecution and disgrace.' Save the woman who you wish to benefit from the blackest imputations, from hazard to her life and her fame, from languishing in dungeons, from expiring on the gallows. The bills! Oh, save me from the bitterness of death! Let the evils to which my miserable life has given birth terminate here and in myself. Surrender them to me, for— Here he stopped. His utterance was choked by terror— Rapid glances were again darted at the windows and doors. The silence was uninterrupted except by far-off sounds produced by some moving carriage. Once more he summoned resolution and spoke. "'Surrender them to me, for they are forged. Formerly I told you that a scheme of forgery had been conceived. Shame would not suffer me to add that my scheme was carried into execution.' The bills were fashioned, but my fears contended against my necessities, and forbade me to attempt to exchange them. The interview with Lodi saved me from the dangerous experiment. I enclosed them in that volume as the means of future opulence to be used when all other and less hazardous resources should fail. In the agonies of my remorse at the death of Watson they were forgotten. They afterwards recurred to recollection— my wishes pointed to the grave, but the stroke that should deliver me from life was suspended only till I could hasten hither, get possession of these papers, and destroy them. When I thought upon the chances that should give them an owner, bring them into circulation, load the innocent with suspicion, and lead them to trial, and perhaps to death, my sensations were fraught with agony. Earnestly as I panted for death, it was necessarily deferred till I had gained possession of— and destroyed these papers. What now remains? You have found them. Happily they have not been used. Give them, therefore, to me, that I may crush at once the brood of mischiefs which they could not but generate. This disclosure was strange. It was accompanied with every token of sincerity. How had I tottered on the brink of destruction? If I had made use of this money, in what a labyrinth of misery might I not have been involved? My innocence could never have been proved. An alliance with Welbeck could not have failed to be inferred. My career would have found an ignominious close, or, if my punishment had been transmuted into slavery and toil, would the testimony of my conscience have supported me? I shuddered at the view of those disasters from which I was rescued by the miraculous chance which led me to this house— Welbeck's request was salutary to me and honorable to himself. I could not hesitate a moment in compliance. The notes were enclosed in paper and deposited in a fold of my clothes. I put my hand upon them. My motion and attention were arrested at the instant by a noise which arose in the street. Footsteps were heard upon the pavement before the door and voices as if busy in discourse. This incident was adapted to infuse the deepest alarm into myself and my companion. 
The motives of our trepidation were, indeed, different, and were infinitely more powerful in my case than in his. It portended to me nothing less than the loss of my asylum and condemnation to a hospital. Welbeck hurried to the door to listen to the conversation below. This interval was pregnant with thought. That impulse which led my reflections from Welbeck to my own state passed away in a moment, and suffered me to meditate anew upon the terms of that confession which had just been made. Horror at the fate which this interview had enabled me to shun was uppermost in my conceptions. I was eager to surrender these fatal bills. I held them for that purpose in my hand, and was impatient for Welbeck's return. He continued at the door, stooping with his face averted, and eagerly attentive to the conversation in the street. All the circumstances of my present situation tended to arrest the progress of thought and chain my contemplations to one image, but even now there was room for foresight and deliberation. Welbeck intended to destroy these bills. Perhaps he had not been sincere, or, if his purpose had been honestly disclosed, this purpose might change when the bills were in his possession. His poverty and sanguineness of temper might prompt him to use them. That this conduct was evil and would only multiply his miseries could not be questioned. Why should I subject his frailty to this temptation? The destruction of these bills was the loudest injunction of my duty, was demanded by every sanction which bound me to promote the welfare of mankind. The means of destruction was easy. A lighted candle stood on a table at the distance of a few yards. Why should I hesitate a moment to annihilate so powerful a cause of error and guilt? A passing instant was sufficient. A momentary lingering might change the circumstances that surrounded me and frustrate my project. My languors were suspended by the urgencies of this occasion. I started from my bed and glided to the table. Seizing the notes with my right hand, I held them in the flame of the candle and then threw them blazing on the floor. The sudden illumination was perceived by Welbeck. The cause of it appeared to suggest itself as soon. He turned, and marking the paper where it lay, leaped to the spot and extinguished the fire with his foot. His interposition was too late. Only enough of them remained to inform him of the nature of the sacrifice. Welbeck now stood with limbs trembling, features aghast, and eyes glaring upon me. For a time he was without speech. The storm was gathering in silence, and at length burst upon me. In a tone menacing and loud, he exclaimed, "'Wretch! What have you done?' "'I have done justly. These notes were false. You desired to destroy them, that they might not betray the innocent. I applauded your purpose, and have saved you from the danger of temptation by destroying them myself.' "'Maniac! Miscreant! To be fooled by so gross an artifice! The notes were genuine. The tale of their forgery was false, and meant only to wrest them from you. Execrable and perverse idiot, your deed has sealed my perdition. It has sealed your own. You shall pay with it with your blood. I will slay you by inches.' I will stretch you as you have stretched me on the rack. 
During this speech all was frenzy and storm in the countenance and features of Welbeck. Nothing less could be expected that the scene would terminate in some bloody catastrophe. I bitterly regretted the facility with which I had been deceived, and the precipitation of my sacrifice. The act, however lamentable, could not be revoked. What remained but to encounter or endure its consequences with unshrinking firmness? The contest was too unequal. It is possible that the frenzy which actuated Welbeck might have speedily subsided. It is more likely that his passions would have been satiated with nothing but my death. This event was precluded by loud knocks at the street door, and calls by someone on the pavement without of, "'Who is within? Is any one within?' These noises gave a new direction to Welbeck's thoughts. "'They're coming,' said he. They will treat you as a sick man and a thief. I cannot desire you to suffer a worse evil than they will inflict. I leave you to your fate. So saying, he rushed out of the room. Though confounded and stunned by this rapid succession of events, I was yet able to pursue measures for eluding these detested visitants. At first I extinguished the light, and then, observing that the parley in the street continued and grew louder, I sought an asylum in the remotest corner of the house. During my former abode here, I noticed that a trap-door opened in the ceiling of the third story to which you are to which you were conducted by a movable stair or ladder. I considered that this, probably, was an opening to a narrow and darksome nook formed by the angle of the roof. By ascending, drawing after me the ladder, and closing the door, I should escape the most vigilant search." Enfeebled as I was by my disease, my resolution rendered me strenuous. I gained the uppermost room, and, mounting the ladder, found myself at a sufficient distance from suspicion. The stair was hastily drawn up, and the door closed. In a few minutes, however, my new retreat proved to be worse than any for which it was possible to change it. The air was musty, stagnant, and scorchingly hot. My breathing became difficult, and I saw that to remain here ten minutes would unavoidably produce suffocation. My terror of intruders had rendered me blind to the consequences of immuring myself in this cheerless recess. It was incumbent on me to extricate myself as speedily as possible. I attempted to lift the door. My first effort was successless. Every inspiration was quicker and more difficult than the former. As my terror, so my strength and my exertions increased. Finally, my trembling hand lighted on a nail that was imperfectly driven into the wood, and which, by affording me a firmer hold, enabled me at length to raise it, and to inhale the air from beneath. Relieved from my new peril by this situation, I bent an attentive ear through the opening, with a view to ascertain if the house had been entered, or if the outer door was still beset, but could hear nothing. Hence I was authorized to conclude that the people had departed, and that I might resume my former station without hazard. Before I descended, however, I cast a curious eye over this recess. It was large enough to accommodate a human being. The means by which it was entered were easily concealed. Though narrow and low, it was long, and, were it possible to contrive some inlet for air, 
one studious of concealment might rely on its protection with unbounded confidence. My scrutiny was imperfect by reason of the faint light which found its way through the opening, yet it was sufficient to set me afloat on a sea of new wonders and subject my fortitude to a new test. Here Mervyn paused in his narrative. A minute passed in silence and seeming indecision. His perplexities gradually disappeared, and he continued. I have promised to relate the momentous incidents of my life, and there has hitherto nothing which been I more detest in my equivocation and mystery. Perhaps, however, I shall now incur some imputation of that kind. I would willingly escape the accusation, but confess that I am hopeless of escaping it. I might, indeed, have precluded your guesses and surmises by omitting to relate what befell me from the time of my leaving my chamber till I regained it. I might deceive you by asserting that nothing remarkable occurred, but this would be false, and every sacrifice is trivial which is made upon the altar of sincerity. Besides, the time may come when no inconvenience will arise from minute descriptions of the objects which I now saw, and of the reasonings and inferences which they suggested to my understanding. At present it appears to be my duty to pass them over in silence, but it would be needless to conceal from you that the interval, though short, and the scrutiny, though hasty, furnished matter which my curiosity devoured with unspeakable eagerness, and from which consequences may hereafter flow, deciding on my peace and my life. Nothing, however, occurred which could detain me long in this spot. I once more sought the lower story and threw myself on the bed which I had left. My mind was thronged with the images flowing from my late adventure. My fever had gradually increased, and my thoughts were deformed by inaccuracy and confusion. My heart did not sink when I reverted to my own condition. That I should quickly be disabled from moving was readily perceived. The foresight of my destiny was steadfast and clear. To linger for days in this comfortless solitude, to ask in vain, not for powerful restoratives or alleviating cordials, but for water to moisten my burning lips and abate the torments of thirst, ultimately to expire in torpor or frenzy, was the fate to which I looked forward, yet I was not terrified. I seemed to be sustained by a preternatural energy. I felt as if the opportunity of combating such evils was an enviable privilege, and, though none would witness my victorious magnanimity, yet to be conscious that praise was my due was all that my ambition required. These sentiments were doubtless tokens of delirium. The excruciating agonies which now seized upon my head, and the cord which seemed to be drawn across my breast, and which, as my fancy imagined, was tightened by some forcible hand with a view to strangle me, were incompatible with sober and coherent views. Thirst was the evil which chiefly oppressed me. The means of relief was pointed out by nature and habit. I rose and determined to replenish my pitcher at the well. It was easier, however, to descend than to return. My limbs refused to bear me, and I sat down upon the lower step of the staircase.
Several hours had elapsed since my entrance into this dwelling, and it was now night. My imagination now suggested a new expedient. Medlicote was a generous and fearless spirit. To put myself under his protection, if I could walk as far as his lodgings, was the wisest proceeding which I could adopt. From this design, my incapacity to walk thus far, and the consequences of being discovered in the street, had hitherto deterred me. These impediments were now, in the confusion of my understanding, overlooked or despised, and I forthwith set out on this hopeless expedition. The doors communicating with the court, and through the court with the street, were fastened by inside bolts. These were easily withdrawn, and I issued forth with alacrity and confidence. My perturbed senses and the darkness hindered me from discerning the right way. I was conscious of this difficulty, but was not disheartened. I proceeded, as I have since discovered, in a direction different from the true, but hesitated not till my powers were exhausted and I sunk upon the ground. I closed my eyes and dismissed all fear and all foresight of futurity. In this situation I remained some hours, and should probably have expired on this spot had not I attracted your notice and been provided under this roof with all that medical skill that the tenderest humanity could suggest. In consequence of your care I have been restored to life and to health. Your conduct was not influenced by the prospect of pecuniary recompense, of service, or of gratitude. It is only in one way that I am able to heighten the gratification which must flow from reflection on your conduct, by showing that the being whose life you have prolonged, though uneducated, ignorant, and poor, is not profligate and worthless, and will not dedicate that life which your bounty has given to mischievous or contemptible purposes. End of chapter 23